0: This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to the Zoomer Weekend Review, brought to you by Carp, helping you unlock money you didn't know you had. Members only discounts that can save you tons. Find out more at carp.ca.
1: Good afternoon and welcome to the Zoomer Week in Review, all things Zoomer worldwide. I'm Libby Zneimer. It's one of the first big public events to resume. The National Bank Open wraps up today in Montreal and Toronto. We'll look at the logistics. And revisiting the legacy of Terry Fox on the 41st anniversary of the Marathon of Hope. But first, here are your Zoomer headlines from around the world. New U.S. census data show that in the last decade, the white population declined for the first time in history as the population became more diverse. According to the numbers... The non-Hispanic white population shrank by 8.6% since 2010, though it is still the largest racial group with almost 58% of the U.S. population. During that period, the African-American population grew 5.6%, and the Asian population grew by 35%. People who identify as multiracial increased from 9 million to 33.8 million. If you're blaming weight gain on a slowing metabolism as you age, you could be wrong especially if you're under 60. Groundbreaking research in a new international study counters the common belief that our metabolism inevitably declines during our adult lives. Researchers found that metabolism peaks around the age of one when babies burn calories 50% faster than adults and then gradually declines about 3% a year until the age of 20. From there, metabolism remains stable until around 60 when it starts to slowly decline again, but by less than 1% a year. The findings are published in the journal Science. You may want to check your sunscreen brand. Researchers asked U.S. regulators to pull some sunscreens from the market, including Coppertone, Banana Boat, and Neutrogena, saying they've found evidence of a potential carcinogen. Scientists want to remove all sunscreens containing the active ingredient octocrylene. Belgian researchers published similar results after testing these products. New Supercommon gets out stains when well, other leading cleansers can't. Hey, what are you doing? I don't have to wear the sign. Why not? New is so great, people find out anyway. Yeah! Zoomers may remember former child star Jane Withers from her TV commercials in the 60s and 70s portraying Josephine the plumber selling the bathroom cleaner Comet. Jane Withers died this week at the age of 95. She first got a name as the spunky girl who would vex fellow child star Shirley Temple on the big screen. The world's oldest tennis player from Ukraine is 97 and still in the game. Leonid Stanislavski says it's next to impossible to find a worthy adversary in his age group. The Guinness World Record holder is training hard ahead of this year's Super Seniors World Championship in October in Spain. And though Leonid may have the official record, a player I knew also played until the age of 97. Bernie Kaufman was a delight gentleman who was out on the court several times a week until he passed away on December 31st, 2020, just a few weeks short of his 98th birthday. I miss his legendary stamina and wit. I'm Libby Snymer, and those are your Zoomer headlines from around the world. It's Finals Day at the National Bank Open, one of the first large events to resume in the wake of COVID-19. The week-long tennis tournament in Toronto and Montreal was a very different experience for both players and fans. I talked with Managing Director Gavin Ziv about the demands of pandemic planning. Congratulations on getting the tournament up and running. I know that you didn't get the go-ahead until very recently.
2: That's true. Uh, We definitely were down to the wire uh, with regards to the formal approvals, Um, but uh, work with three levels of government had taken, um, you know, really since probably December in in lots of detail. But even going back to last year, when we were trying to get the 2020 version on, we had those initial discussions as well.
1: So... What was involved? You had to find out if you could hold a tournament, uh, and then, I guess, uh, how did it get to the level where you found out if you could actually have an audience there?
2: Yeah, so it, it probably started for us more with the international tours. You know, for us, with the, the men's tour, of the ATP, and, and in Montreal, for the, the women's tour with the WTA, just making sure that the protocols for running international events was happening, and it was. The majority of those events around the world have taken place in one form or another. So when we thought that we would have our space on the calendar, we then started the discussions uh, with, you know, government uh, here in Canada. The first step was coming up with a protocol that we thought could be accepted by local public health.
1: Okay, so I know that first there was an approval that you could have a tournament with players, but then what did you have to do in addition to that to get approval for actual audience?
2: That's right, and so we worked with that approval, and we got the approval for running what was a broadcast-only event, you're right, just for TV, Um, and that was done with the City of Toronto um, Public Health, uh, Ontario Public Health, Um, and then working with the federal government to try and make sure we can get those athletes into the country. Um, so that was kind of that, that first part there, which we thought we would have a good chance to run that level of event. But then as the Ontario framework we went through its stages and we eventually got to stage two and then stage three, we went through an evolution of what would be possible. And we went from probably having no fans to probably around a 1,000 fans. And then we landed up probably just shy of about 5,000 where we are right now. But that's actually all taken place over the past three and a half weeks. So it really was a quick evolution on that. We had been planning for all the different scenarios, so it wasn't like we were caught off guard, but we didn't think it would become a reality. And then we got the final approval from the federal government with regards to um, you know, athletes coming in the country uh, and coming to Toronto to, run, to, go, to do this event, and that was um, July 26th.
1: Having 5,000 people in the audience, how does that compare? What do you normally have?
2: Usually on, on, on a tournament like this, we would have a capacity of up to about 11,500 people. We're using a smaller part of the the stadium, just kind of the lower section plus the suite level. So the capacity is about 8,000 typically for that level, and we're just under 5,000. So it's a pretty good percentage.
1: With less than 50% of the fans, how does that affect the bottom line?
2: Yeah, and our modeling this year was really based on running an event we thought would be for TV only. It really was a broadcast-only model. And Tennis Canada, who, you know, we had a tough year last year with hosting no events. We were planning to probably um, lose money again this year. It made a big difference having some fans on site now, which has been a big help for us. And hopefully as a not-for-profit organization, we can actually, you know, be on the plus side this year at the end of the year as opposed to losing money.
1: Is it safe to say it's generating revenue about half or less than half? Uh,
2: I'm not sure. It Probably be less than half, but, you know, hopefully something in that in that range.
1: What about the other restrictions on the fans? In addition to cutting the numbers, they weren't allowed to walk the grounds and the usual restaurants and retailers weren't here.
2: The protocol was very heavy with regards to maintaining the, what you call, closed environment or bubble for the international people that come into the country, which is the players, their coaches and physio staff, and then, of course, some of the broadcasting that's international as well. So that group comes in, And, you know, they got an exemption from the federal government to come in and be in this bubble zone, which is really the hotel to the venue and a very specific part of the venue where they can be. And because the athletes are um, training on the outside grounds and the practice courts and on those other smaller courts where they have some matches, that is all part of the bubble system. So only for them, very isolated from the fan section, which is only in the big stadium. So we had to have those those grounds separated in order to maintain this bubble. And it's worked really well. But yes, because of that, generally our, you know, small, the, the, the retail village and the f and the activations we do with our sponsors on the outside courts area can't exist. The Shuriko fans can't go there. That is the experience this year is watching some of the world's best tennis in an amazing stadium. But that outside area, you know, which is such a big part of the magical experience for our tennis, uh, we'll have to wait till next year.
1: Gavin Ziv, congratulations on getting this together. And thanks so much for joining us.
2: Great. My pleasure. Thank you, Libby.
1: That was Gavin Ziv, Managing Director of the National Bank Open. I'm Libby Zneimer, and this is the Zoomer Week in Review, coming up, remembering Terry Fox.
0: You're listening to the Zoomer Week in Review, brought to you by CARP. Fighting against ageism in the workplace and the marketplace. Find out more at carp.ca.
1: Unlike the tennis tournament, many charities will be holding their big events virtually for the second time. That's why this week the Terry Fox Foundation unveiled a star-studded show it produced called Terry Fox, The Power of One. It began with Tom Cochran on stage while images of Terry's run 41 years ago were projected behind him. Stars like Pinball Clemens followed. 41 years ago, a selfless and courageous man decided that he was going to run across Canada, the second largest country in the world, to raise awareness for cancer. That's why I thought it was a good time to revisit my interview with Terry's brother, Daryl Fox, recorded a year ago to mark the 40th anniversary of the Marathon of Hope.
3: It's always a, a proud... A proud moment to live in the legacy of Terry Fox. And as a family member, I'm able to do that every day of my life. And I was fortunate enough to, to spend uh three months in a stinky Ford van back in 1980 as well. So to see that Terry's story is still relevant and still inspiring people, it it's just incredible. And obviously, we've had to curtail our, our celebration and, and plans this year in light of uh, COVID 19. But uh, you know Terry Foxers are, are very driven people um, and uh, we're looking forward to uh, a very successful uh, and different Terry Fox run in September.
1: To what do you attribute the power of his image his legacy still to inspire people?
3: I think there's so so many factors uh, you know just my experience of what I witnessed in terms of Terry's physical and emotional accomplishments but it goes beyond that it's it's the personality, it's it's his humbleness, it's his humility. It's something that I think uh, really resonates with Canadians. Uh, you know, one of the things that I most admire about Terry Fox was the, the person that started on April 12th, 1980, the Marathon of Hope, was the same person who was forced to stop on September 1st, despite all the attention, the profile, the fame and fortune that was offered to him. He remained grounded. He remained little old Terry Fox from small town, D.C. Um, and, uh, you know, you see how fame and fortune impacts, you know, on, on athletes and and those in the entertainment field. It didn't have that impact on Terry. He he knew what why he was running across the Canada. He said that he would never forget those that he had left behind in the cancer ward, and that was his focus. And I think that's why... Why we continue to reflect and talk about Terry forty years later?
1: Do you think he had a sense that he wouldn't make it?
3: I think in in reflecting, Libby, I, I think so. You know, I, I for one thought he was invincible. You know, I again being there for for ninety plus days, um, it seemed that you know, no matter how tired and fatigued or injured he was, he got up the next morning and started and started to run. But when I when we remember back on you know the last few weeks and and you know what I remember was very clear for Terry was the fact that he wanted to get home. You know he was he was calculating every not not only every mile but every foot that he had ran. So his focus was was uh, reaching uh, the Pacific Ocean, and yet we were still over two thousand miles away. So you know I again looking back I I should have sensed that something wasn't quite right. I mean, Terry, when he was diagnosed the second time with cancer, he had, you know, two uh, tumors, one the size of a, a lemon in one lung and one the size of a golf ball in the other, and yet he would, was able to run 26 miles the day before. So, you know, he was he was incredible in terms of his, his grit and determination and never give up attitude. But, again, I, I, I should have realized that uh, something wasn't quite right in, in the weeks pre- preceding September 1st.
1: I'm looking at the quote that, I guess, Sidney Crosby has in his home, and it says, Today we got up at 4 a.m. as usual, it was tough. What does that say about Terry?
3: Well, yeah, it, that, that's what it was like every, every day, that, uh, you know, despite the challenges and and difficulties and, and feelings that he had, he, he, he got up every, every morning. And I, as a 17-year-old, was looking forward to maybe pressing the snooze button, being able to sleep in, not Terry. You know, we, we get up every morning at 4, 4.30, and he was uh, uh, out there running another marathon. It Again, it shows that uh, limitations we have are, are self-imposed, that we are capable of doing everything. Terry proved to us that the impossible is indeed possible, and, and that's the, the message we share with the next generation
1: do you have a, a sense of what you think priorities should be in cancer research at the moment? Is there anything intriguing you?
3: Yeah, I think what's important for us is we we follow Terry's vision. I mean, if Terry was diagnosed with osteosarcoma bone cancer, um, he could have ran across the country raising money for osteosarcoma. But he had a bigger vision than that, and he wanted to reach out to, to, to fund and support all Forms of the disease of which, as you would know, there's over 200. So for us, it's always been about, and this was Terry's wish and request, is that we we fund scientific excellence and we focus on team. Just like Terry brought a nation together in 1980, that's that's what we do in terms of the research community. We like research to form research teams, and uh, and that that continues to be our focus, our program. Terry Fox Program Project Grant competition is 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 world renowned, um, internet internationally peer reviewed every every year. That's a very important project, and we recently launched with the or will be launching with the support of the federal government the Marathon of Hope Cancer Center Network.
1: Yes, I know um, I know all about that. Yes.
3: Yeah, so we're very excited by that. That's, a, that's going to be another challenge for us because it it, it is a match there. The federal government is prepared to contribute 150 million over five years, but we—and this is where we're working together with our partners across the country—we, the Terry Fox Foundation, along with others, needs to raise 150 million dollars. So, but so we like a challenge, and we're looking forward to to making that happen.
1: Anything else uh, you want to leave people with?
3: Please, uh, please uh, join us. Please come out, join us. I say join us because uh, you we you will be, though it's virtually. On September 20th, uh, visit terryfox.org.
1: Daryl Fox, thank you so much for being with us.
3: Well, my pleasure. Thank you, Libby.
1: Okay, bye-bye. That was Daryl Fox, Terry's brother, remembering the iconic Marathon of Hope. And that brings us to the end of this week's edition of the Zoomer Weekend Review. I'm Libby Zneimer. Thanks for joining me today. Be sure to come back next week to stay up-to-date with all things Zoomer worldwide.
0: Zoomer Week in Review is produced by Zeev Hadi, Christine Ross, and Paul Thomas. Technical producer, Justin Eacock. Executive producer, Moses Nimer. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.